There was a word in the second or third song there that changed my opening here. That word is lavished. We see it in the Psalms. We see it in Ephesians 1, our memory verse for at 9. Those of us who have taken a couple weeks off, uh, remember Ephesians 1, 7 and 8. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. I think feeding 5,000 looks like lavished, even if it is fish, and even if there is no dessert. <laughs> Mark 6, starting in verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish, and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. 3,000 ate the fish, 2,000 said, no thanks, no. So, we find this story in all four of the Gospels. It must be important. Well, what's important about this story? 
Is it about what happened just before it? Is it what's, what the disciples are learning or what the disciples did? Is it what Jesus was teaching the people or what he was teaching the disciples? Is it important because what it teaches us today? What is the message for us in this story that we've heard so many times? Well, some things to review. Three weeks ago, we heard that Jesus sent his disciples out in twos. And we just read the first verse was, they came back. What were they sent out to do? They were sent out to tell the people the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They were told to tell the people to repent. They were to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. We don't know how long they were gone. We don't know where they went. They were told, don't go to the Samaritans, don't go to the Gentiles, go to the people of Israel. Now, did the people of Israel include Judea, or were they just in Galilee? Were they gone much of Jesus' second year of ministry, or were they gone for three weeks? You remember, they're walking, and so it takes a little longer than, well, let's just hop in the car and run over to five miles away. Why did they come back at this moment? Um, what are disciples? This is a month ago. Disciples do what? Disciples follow. Disciples follow their leader. But in Mark 6.30, we read, the apostles returned to Jesus. Who are, what are our apostles? Apostles are people who are sent out by their leader. The sent ones, the ambassadors, the representatives. The sent ones returned to Jesus. I picture this. Two came, another two. Do you ever get together and one of, I'll say it with, uh, the kids are coming home. And one kid gets there and you want to start telling the stories, but no, you got to wait till everyone gets there so you don't tell it four times. I know, three times for us. Um, so did they, did they arrive in all at once? Holy Spirit just directed them all to come? Did they hear about John the Baptist's death and say, we need to get back to Jesus? How'd they know where he was? The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Of course, they didn't have Facebook. They didn't have uh, Instagram or anything like that to have that daily report like you can't believe what the Holy Spirit did through us today. We healed people. Whether it was two weeks or eight months, they had a lot to tell. 
Do you think that some of the disciples had more to tell than others? Do you think that all 12 were just exactly the same on how good they were at preaching and, and how effective they were at reaching people and causing and uh, leading to repentance? They had been received by strangers. They had told people to repent, and undoubtedly some had. Some had probably said, hey, can we go with you? Maybe they did. They had anointed sick people with oil. They had cast out demons. They had experienced the power of the Holy Spirit doing things they could never have imagined. Lavished. And they had told people it was through the power of Jesus the Nazarene. So many people had seen Jesus, had heard Jesus, had heard of his miracles, and now they had heard these 12 guys and seen these 12 guys doing things in the power of Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus was becoming famous. We see this again in Acts 4.10, where Peter and John have healed the lame man on their way to the temple. We could sing that song. Um, and uh, the religious leaders call them in. They say, how are you doing this? By whose power did you raise this man? And they responded, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. Now, obviously, the 12, when they went out, didn't know anything about the crucifixion and the resurrection, but they knew Jesus Christ the Nazarene. Jesus was famous, but most people didn't know who he really was. Remember last week, Herod said, he's John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Others said he was Elijah or another prophet. Jesus said to them, verse 31, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. Most commentators say Jesus was recognizing that they needed rest. They had just been overwhelmed by the people. I mean, when you can't get a moment to eat, something's wrong. Many sermons have been preached about the need for ministers to get a break. If you don't go apart, you'll come apart. That's not a simple thing because when Jesus got to that desolate place and it wasn't desolate but there was actually crowds of people he didn't send them away and say no, my disciples need rest. Others have suggested that Jesus was getting away from Herod's territory having just heard that John was uh, murdered, to get to his brother Philip's 
territory, a safer territory. It says in one of the verses that when he heard about John the Baptist, he said, we've got to get away. But next week, which is a day later, he went right back. So he wasn't running away from Herod's territory. Verse 32, and they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now I want a map of the Sea of Galilee. Um, some time ago, John Fun talked uh, about the Sea of Galilee. Do you remember how big this body of water is? Even John doesn't remember. Well, it's about 13 miles long. It's about eight miles wide at the widest. Most of it is nowhere near eight miles long. It's a big lake. What's that, about three times the size of Gull Lake? Two and a half, three times? Big, but not huge. As John told us, you know, if the weather's clear, you can see across it. Um... Wouldn't be hard for uh, people to see your boat out there as it's going. Um, the next map. I know this one's got a lot of busy stuff. You've got to give credit to casualenglishbible.com. But um, a couple things I wanted us to see in this is the topography. It's, you know, there's a lot of cliffs and mountains, hills, that it looks like this body of water is below that Mediterranean, doesn't it? Well, it is. It's 700 feet below sea level. Um, so if Jesus and his disciples are near Capernaum and they go across the lake to Bethsaida, I'm getting ahead of myself, but um, we are talking about five, six miles. Um, not a huge walk, but longer than I walked this morning. Um, so tradition says that this happened on the west side, kind of where that in that area of the Mount, of Beati Mount Beatitudes. Um, and some of you who have been to Israel may have been to the church that's on that site where they say this is where the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, um, most commentators, however, agree with me. I guess I should say I agree with most commentators. <laughs> Makes sense. Um, in Luke 9, it says, Jesus said, um, let's go to Bethsaida which is over there on the, on the east side. And, uh, and then I'll let Brent explain next week, verse 45, where Jesus tells the disciples to go to Bethsaida after the feeding of the 5,000. Um, a couple minor things, but interesting things, at least interesting to me. Um, how many of you know that the Jordan River flows out of the bottom, the south end of the Sea of Galilee, down to the Dead Sea? We all know that, right? 
How many of you know that the Jordan River runs into the north end of the Sea of Galilee also? You know, I studied historical geography. I had to have known this. But even my drawing that you guys have mostly seen of the Middle East um, has nothing about the Jordan coming into the... So the Sea of Galilee is filled by springs and by the Jordan River flowing in from the north. So you learn something new. Um, Another interesting thing that I only just found out last week, two weeks ago, whatever, is that there was a boat that was found in the Sea of Galilee in 1986, um, and it's from the time of Jesus. Um, it's 27 feet long, it's seven and a half feet wide, and it is in a museum in this town in, uh, in Israel, and I know Deb has, has seen it, has anybody else seen this boat, Eleanor? Um, and so, just interesting to, oh, that's what, that, what a boat like this would have looked like. Um, and found in many of our lifetime, some of you, you know, just before. Um, it's called the Jesus Boat, or the Sea of Galilee Boat. Um, and you too can see it in a museum. Okay, back to verse 33. Now many saw them going and recognized them. Hey, there's those 13 guys in a boat. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. Can you picture they were leaving a crowd. That's why they were getting away, right? Because they couldn't get a break. And so that crowd goes and they keep, what's this crowd? What's going on? And well, we're following Jesus, and people join, and the crowd gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. They were motivated. They were excited. I mean, you don't really know where he's going, how far. I mean, what if he gets going that way and then heads south? You could have a long hike. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. How many of the 13 do you think were annoyed? Jesus apparently wasn't. He could have easily been annoyed. But see the next line. He had compassion on them. Pastor Preston talked last week about a visceral response. This word compassion means to experience a deep, visceral feeling for someone. Right down here in the gut. To feel sympathy, to take pity on someone. An awareness of the need with a desire to alleviate it. Not enough to say, stinks to be them. Actually want to do something about it. The disciples often saw crowds. I imagine they often saw those crowds as being work. Constant demands. And right now, when they needed rest, we're stuck with this crowd. Jesus saw them and was moved with compassion. 
Each face reflected a need, a hunger, a hurt. Why did Jesus feel compassion for the crowd? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd are sheep in danger, great danger. Here, the danger was not physical, but even worse, it was spiritual. They were in danger of falling off the cliff into a Christless eternity. Shepherdless sheep. Folks trying to make it on their own through life. The kingdom of man from last week. Spiritually speaking, they had no one to lead them into real life, eternal life. In Ezekiel 34, the Lord cries out against evil shepherds of Israel who had neglected and abused the people. Verses 23 and 24, he promises, And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. That Davidic shepherd king has now appeared in Jesus. Once again lost in the wilderness like the Israelites of old, in a desolate place, the good shepherd Jesus has arrived to spiritually guide them and feed them by his word. His compassion moved him to teach them. His compassion moves him to meet their greatest spiritual needs, but also their other needs as well. Some are sick, and soon all of them will be hungry. Today, he is still the Good Shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Picture this crowd. We're told in that last verse, 5,000 men, as Pastor John alluded. Then there's the women and the children. We could be talking about 15,000 easily. Scattered around this desolate place. Now remember, I already read that it was green. So if you're thinking desolate has to be rocks and sand, um, you know, it's green. Um, but it's away from other places. So do you think they were all quiet, listening? Did he walk around and talk to 30 people here and 40 people there? And It took all day. He taught them many things. What did he teach them? Do you think some had questions for him? Do you think some even had trick questions? We've heard about some of those before. Don't you wish one of the disciples had a smartphone? We could have this all recorded. We could. I want to be a disciple. I don't have a smartphone. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. 
Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. And I think it's Luke says, and find a place to stay. The disciples, they're just looking out for the crowd. I don't want to be too hard on them. If I said something like that, I would want to, I'd want you to think I thought it was for their best interest. The disciples and Jesus saw the same need. Did they see the same solution? Verse 37, but he answered them, you give them something to eat. Huh? If they brought anything for themselves last night or this morning when they left, um, it's all gone, right? Because they don't have anything. You got to wonder, how did 13 guys get in a boat to go someplace to a desolate place and not take food? They were planning to fish all day, so I don't know. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? I like in John 6, this is before, I think this is before he tells them to go. It says, when he saw, when Jesus looked up in verse 5, when Jesus looked up and saw a large crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where can we buy bread for these people to eat? I think this was earlier, but I can't prove that. So I think that maybe the disciples have already had that question on their minds before the time keeps getting longer and longer and Jesus is still teaching and healing and the 12 are going, when is this going to end? Um, But verse 6 says, but he was asking this to test him, Philip, for he knew what he was about to do. Apparently, the possibility that Jesus might create food for these people didn't cross their mind. Now remember, some of, at least some of these disciples had been at the wedding at Cana. They saw Jesus make wine out of water. Um, they've been with him for upwards of two years, They've seen him raise the dead. I mean, what else could possibly there be that he can't do? But obviously, that's not the way he normally does stuff, even in their time. They're not, apparently, their daily routine is not, okay, get up, go to the next place, and then at 3 o'clock we take a break, and Jesus creates food for us. Their routine is like ours. You have to grow it, buy it, make it. It doesn't just appear. They were focused on the problem. They need to find a human solution. And they didn't consider that Jesus might use his divine power. How 
How many of the disciples knew about the Israelites and manna? Come on, they all did. How many of us know about that? We grew up hearing about the manna. We grew up hearing about feeding the 5,000 and the 4,000 in a few chapters from now. Do we expect God to provide for us? Or do we think that we're supposed to provide for ourselves? Verse 38, and he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. Now you have to read one of the other gospels to know that they found a little boy who had a lunch and he was willing to give it. And you have to go to another gospel to hear when they presented their answer, five and two fishes, but what good is that? What do you think they were thinking about when Jesus said, go find out how much food you have? Um, Anybody got food? Anybody? You got food? Did you bring food? I personally think that there were a bunch of people who had food. Because I think that if you had 5,000 families, at least a few of those moms said, we're taking food with us. How many of them were willing to give it? One little boy. Five loaves and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. They looked like garden plots in a huge field of green. I say that because that's what that groups word means. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Was he blessing the food or was he blessing God who supplied it? And broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people, and he divided the two fish among them all. Why did Jesus break and break and break and break and then give to the disciples to distribute rather than I mean, it would have been faster if he just made it appear in everybody's hands. Was there a reason that he used the disciples as his agents? Does he still use our hands and our feet? He doesn't need us any more than he needed them. But he uses us. And they all ate and were satisfied. And in John 6, we learned in tomorrow, they'll ask for more. They saw Jesus multiply the loaves and fishes, but they didn't recognize who he was. Ever seen anybody else do that? I mean, we've heard this question, by whose power do you do this stuff before? They're unwilling to recognize that Jesus is the king.
that he is God. They'll settle for him. In fact, they, they're clamoring for him to be their earthly king, the kingdom of man. But they don't understand the kingdom of God. The real issue of the gospel isn't satisfaction. They were satisfied. The real issue of the gospel is sin and righteousness and judgment. People can be amazed by miracles, but if they're not convicted about their sin and their need for a savior, they will not be saved from God's judgment. Verse 43, and they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. Jesus could have created just the right amount. What did they do with the 12 baskets that were left over? Ran them down to the haven? Twelve baskets, 12 disciples, 12 tribes. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. So what's the message for us? One, our God is the creator, the provider. Jesus is God. Creating food for 5,000 men as well as the women and the children proves that Jesus is God. If you've been reading ahead, you know that the disciples were afraid in the storm that's going to hit them as they try and get across the Sea of Galilee overnight. When Jesus got in the boat and the wind ceased, they were utterly astounded. Why? For they did not understand about the loaves. Understanding about the loaves is critical. Don't miss the message of the loaves. Jesus is the bread of life. He is the only Savior, and he's all that we need. He is sufficient to satisfy the needs of the kingdom of man, but he's the only way, the only way, to the kingdom of God. If you have read even further ahead in chapter 8, when Jesus feeds the 4,000, you know the disciples are still a little bit spiritually dull. Don't get distracted by the physical miracle of the bread and miss the spiritual miracle of salvation. Finally, as disciples... Followers of Jesus, that's us, right? As apostles, sent ones, ambassadors for Christ, that's us, right? <coughs> and stewards, managers of God's blessings in his way for his glory. We must willingly give what we have, not what we don't have. I know it sounds obvious. We often make up excuses, though, about what we don't have. And we fail to offer Jesus what we do have. If I just had more money, 
I'd give regularly to the church. If I just had the gift of salvation, of the gift of evangelism, I'd witness more. If I just had the ability that others have, I'd serve the Lord. If I just, if I just brothers are, but I don't, and but I can't. Jesus didn't use all the bread in Bethsaida. He didn't use all of the beans in Bolivia, all the tea in China, which the disciples didn't have. He used the five loaves and the two fish that they did have. Jesus doesn't ask you to give what you don't have. He asks you to give him what you do have. There's an old story, and I've updated the dollar amounts, of a country preacher who went to a farmer in his church, and he asked, if you had two farms, would you give one farm to God? Yes, replied the farmer, I only wish I were in a position to do it. The preacher persisted. If you had $200,000, would you give $100,000 to the Lord? The farmer replied, oh, yes, I'd love to have that kind of money. I'd gladly give $100,000 for the Lord's work. Then the preacher asked, if you had two pigs, would you give one to the Lord's work? The farmer blurted out, that's not fair. You know I have two pigs. The Lord doesn't use what you don't have. He uses what you have and are willing to give to him. Will we bring our lives to God in a spirit of obedience and sacrifice, no matter how insignificant we may think our gifts are or our talents? Will we expect God to do far above what we can imagine with those gifts? Will we trust that God not only wants to meet the needs of his children, but he wants to lavish his children with spiritual blessings, even to overflowing? How big can you imagine? How much bigger can he lavish? <laughs>